Amen. I'm so glad I know why it's so thin tonight. Because it's between Christmas and New Year's. And you know what? It's already 33 out there. But mainly Christmas and New Year. A lot of our folks are exhausted. How many of you can say, I've had all the Christmas I can stand? <laughs> I understand that thought. I understand that thought. Well, tonight, we got two weeks left on Titus and we're finished. Tonight is so good. We're going to talk about save to do what is good. Save to do what is good. And so uh, let's pray together. Father, we just thank you tonight for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for Christmas and thank you for a new year coming where we're going to have opportunity, Lord willing, to see great things and mighty things done through the name of Jesus, uh, touching many, many lives to the glory of God. And we pray that, Lord, tonight we'll build up the saints, those watching by streaming video and those here tonight, build us up in the faith that is in Jesus Christ, strengthen our vision, strengthen our walk, and we thank you, Lord, for planting us on solid ground in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I'll turn to your neighbor and tell him, it's thin tonight, but you look good. Amen. <laughs> All right. Well, how many had a good Christmas? You're real quiet. I know it's cold out. I know you're tired. But how many of you had a good Christmas? How many are you going to have a good new year? Good new year? How many of you can say, I really feel an anticipation about 2018. We're going to see some strong things happen. Do you feel that? I do. I really do. As a matter of fact, I've had several words on that just to me personally. So I believe that. Now, um, it's always a joy to get into the Word of God because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable, all of it, all of it. That's why we're going through the Bible together in a year once again. And what a great, great joy to know that Bible cover to cover, stem to stern. Amen? So tonight, Titus. And we're going to be starting chapter 3. Now, last time... We ended with Paul's words about how God has redeemed and purified for himself a people zealous for good works. I brought out that uh, it literally means, zeal means zealot. We are literally to be zealots for God, zealots for Jesus Christ. And uh, we also discussed how every Christian represents the kingdom of God and his authority in the world. We are, we are reps for the kingdom of God. Amen. We represent Jesus and the kingdom he introduced us to. Now, as we begin chapter 3, we're going to see Paul mention three different times the importance of the Christian being involved in good works. Three times. Now, he's already mentioned good works once. But in, one, in the last chapter, he's going to mention good works three times. He's going to tell us to be ready for good works, to maintain good works, and then again, to maintain good works. So clearly, good works are important to the Lord. I wish that everybody in our church was plugged in to doing something that we could call a good work for the Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't call bench warmers. He doesn't call pew sitters. He calls people to get onto the field, carry the ball, and be involved in every touchdown the church scores. Amen? Now... First of all, first off, the, the Christian, according to the Apostle Paul, 
is to be a model citizen in the country where they belong. Did you know that? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them, that is the people of God, to be subject to rulers and authorities to obey. Christians are not to be lawless, but rather submitted to the laws of the land. So long as those same laws do not require them to go against God or break his word. Now let me just take the first part of that sentence. We're not to be lawless. If you watch the news at all, like I do, I don't watch it, I, I, I cover it. I, there's no news I want to watch on TV. I haven't watched a network broadcast, newscast in maybe 25 years. So, well, Jeff, how do you know what's going on? I read because I'm not going to get the truth on a network newscast. Hello, everybody. ABC, CBS, NBC, uh, and not to mention the cable networks. I'm not going to get the truth. So why watch it? It's, it's primarily uh, propaganda anymore. It's not news coverage. That's free. I'm just letting you know. This is not in the Bible. So, but if you're aware of the news and things going on in our country at all, then you know there's all kinds of lawlessness going on. Lawless organizations and lawless protest groups and law, listen, lawlessness in the American government. Hello? Lawlessness. Where, where people say, I don't need to follow the law because I make the law and I'm above the law because I am who I am. Can I tell you that in God's eyes, you're never above the law. Amen. You aren't. If you think you are, keep on trucking. I'll be visiting you one day. <laughs> now, Christians are not to be lawless. But listen, when the laws of the country you live in require you to go against God or to break his word, that is when you say, I can't go there. Amen. So it is conditional submission. We are to be people, Christians, who involve ourselves in, in, in conditional submission. In the book of Acts, there's an example here. When the disciples have been commanded to no longer speak or teach in Jesus' name, remember that? They refused. I mean, they were commanded by the authorities of the land, don't preach or teach in the name of Jesus, but they refused. And here's what they said. We ought to obey God rather than men. Now, I've told you that if somebody, if the, if the Fort Worth police walked in here tonight and they said, Jeff, you know, the city council just met, they passed a new law, you can no longer teach or preach in the name of Jesus, it's a law. I would have to say, I love the Fort Worth city council, I respect the law of the land, but I cannot obey that law. I, I must obey God rather than men, because God would supersede that law. But for the most part, and let me be clear on that, but for the most part, the Christian should exemplify good citizenship, being subject to rulers and authorities. And keep in mind, folks, that Paul wrote this during the wicked Emperor Nero's reign. And if Paul could do that in that wicked reign, if he could be a, a submitted man, then we can submit as well. The only time you see Paul going against the law of the land is when it came to preaching Jesus Christ. You could not stop him. You could not shut him up. So that means traffic laws, that means tax laws. So I don't like the way I'm taxed, I don't either, it's crazy, it's insane. So you vote people in who will give us tax breaks. Y'all need to put on your amen manners tonight. 
Let's try it. One, two, three. Amen. I know it's been a long, long Christmas time. I've been right there with you. I went to more parties than you did. All the department heads had parties, and I went. Now, so, but, but follow me now. We are to obey the laws of the land. Jesus did. He even paid taxes during, during the wicked Caesar's reigns. He paid taxes. Now, Jesus was able to tell them to go fishing and pull the tax money out of the fisher's mouth. I haven't learned that trick yet. I'm looking, to, I'm looking to, for, for God to give me that one. Jeff, just go to the lake and throw a hook in, and when you pull him in, check out his stomach, and all the tax money you need is in there. I'm looking forward to that day. That hasn't happened to me yet. Has it happened to you? If it has, I want you laying hands on me at the end of this service. Now, then for the second time in the first verse, second half of the first verse, for the second time, we're advised to be ready for every good work. He says, to be ready. To be ready. We are to be ready for every good work. Now, the word ready means standing by. Christians should be in the forefront of those who minister to the poor, the sick, the handicapped, the disadvantaged. We are to be standing by. We're not to be running from it. We're not to be hiding from it or shunning it, but we're to be standbys. You need help in reaching the disadvantage? I'm standing by. I'm standing by. I'm your guy. I'm your gal. I'm here. I want to help people in the name of Jesus. As we so often say, good works don't save you, but they are the evidence that you have been saved. Now, let me tell you something, church. When I got saved. I gave my heart to Christ and I, and I really committed to him. It was not long at all before he had me plugged into good works. Doing, blessing people in the name of Jesus for the glory of God. Good works. Good works. The Apostle James wrote a lot about good works mixed with genuine faith. Listen to James. James 2, 14 through 17. He says, what is it profit, brethren? If somebody says he has faith, but he doesn't have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm, depart in peace and be warmed and filled. I see your need, but hey, I'll pray for you. But, but God bless you as you go. And you don't give them the things which are needed for the body that they need, that you see clearly that they need. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself if it doesn't have works, is dead. What he's telling us here is Bible faith, real Bible faith. If you have Bible faith that got you saved, that same faith is going to move you into works. You, you are going to be involved in good works. You're going to bless people. You're going to help people. You're going to reach out to people. You're going to testify to people. You're, you're going to be involved in some kind of a good work. And that's, listen, that's one of the the real messages of our church here. We want you plugged in, ministering somehow, some way, according to the gift that God gave you. And if you don't know you have a gift, let me tell you you have a gift, because Peter said that we were all to minister according to the gift that God gave each one. So we all have a gift. Mine is doing what I'm doing right now, but that's the, not the only thing I do. I want to tell you, during the Christmas season, and, and I'm not, please, you know me, I'm not in any way bragging. I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm giving you a little window into 
how I view Scripture and how I practice my Christianity. But I looked for people during the Christmas season who had physical needs. And they didn't know I was looking. They didn't know I was considering them. And then I blessed them with tangible things, Amen. money, stuff. Amen. And, and I got, listen, I watched people break down and cry because what I gave them made the difference between them being able to give their children a, a gift or not. Okay, now, all I'm saying is, and they, and they would, like, write me and say, I can't believe you did this and blah, blah, blah. And I said, listen, you've made me happy just hearing about what it did. Because I didn't do it in the name of Jeff. I did it in the name of Jesus. Okay? I reached out to people in the name of Jesus. We are to be involved in good works. Thank God we're in a church that has so many ministries, I can't list them all to you. Which one are you plugged into? Which one are you plugged into? Are you plugged into any of them? You can be. It's easy enough. I mean, uh, being an usher is a blessing. Being a greeter is, is a good work. Um, feeding people is a good work. Visiting the sick is a good work. Going, going to prisons and visiting people in jail is a good work. Uh, cooking something for somebody is a good work. A lot of people had that good work towards me this Christmas season. I had so many cookies, homemade cookies, that there's no, if I, listen, if I had kept them all, I wouldn't have finished them in the year 2018. So I just took some of those cookies and I just started blessing it. I went to my neighbors. I, I walked over to a neighbor. Now I'm just going to go ahead and just tell you what. I went home and I, and I looked at this pile. I mean, cookies. I'm talking, I could have opened up my own cookie store and candy. And, and so I thought I got to give some of this away. So there, there were some neighbors that I had not talked to in a long time. I just hadn't run into them. Not, no problem. I just hadn't run into them. So I thought I'm going to take some of these and go over there and, and just give them away. So I knocked on the door and the man answers, and he, he says, come in. I said, no, I don't need to come in. I'm, listen, I know you're busy. It's Christmas time. I just wanted to give these to you. And the wife from somewhere, well, from the living room, shouted out, Jeff, is that you? I'd come to the door, but I can't because I broke my leg. So then I went in, and I walked up to her, and I handed her a big bunch of cookies, and I sat and listened to the whole story of how she broke her leg. And before I know it, I'm aware, I've cheered them up. Amen. I've cheered them up, just going over there and giving. And then I took them some candy corn. And I, I took them so much that I would never have eaten and, and gave it away. Amen. Just gave it away. And so some of you that gave to me, it ended up in my neighbor's houses. And that's okay with you because you bless them. Amen. So here she's all laid up with this broken leg. And so I'm just telling you that it was a good work. Just visiting somebody in need was a good work. What are you involved in? Are you involved in a good work? If you're not, you're missing something. You're missing a blessing that God intended for true Christians. Now, not only are we called to good works, but also, he says in verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all meekness to all men. Uh-oh, we're not to speak evil of anybody. Now, let me explain this. First of all, the word for evil here is blasphemia, and we get blasphemy from it. So 
the word he chose, don't speak blasphemy uh, of anyone. It's a strong word. It means to speak reproachfully or to slander. It, it doesn't mean you can't speak truth about a person because Jesus spoke truth about people all the time, didn't he? He called the Pharisees all kinds of wonderful names. You know, whited gravestones and, and dead men and, 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 you know, liars and deceivers and all kinds of good stuff. But what this is telling us here is don't falsely slander somebody. Don't speak evil of anybody. Don't blaspheme. Don't, don't tell an untruth that is damaging to their character. Don't do it. They says we're to be peaceable. That means not a fighter in the physical sense. We're to be peaceable, not a fighter. He says gentle. That's fair and fitting. That means you're fair. Taking into account the difficult circumstances others may be in. Instead of hammering somebody for doing something wrong, you, you take into account their circumstances, their life. I read um, this week, speaking of news, a, a, a lady was arrested in a Walmart for stealing. And when the officer got her into the car, he realized why she had been stealing. Because she was a single mother and her children had literally nothing to eat. Nothing. And so she, she went in there and was stealing in order to feed her children. So this officer went and bought her food and did not arrest her. Now, I'm not telling you to go steal. Don't go try that out. But here's what I'm saying is he took into account, okay? A lot of the times people do things, you don't know what's going on in their life. You don't know the circumstances. You don't know the pressures. You don't know what they're going through. And so gentle means I take into account what others are suffering before I deal with them. I'm, I'm fair. I'm fair. Meek. We hear meek and we think weak. But meekness is not weakness. Meekness is that quality in us that bows to the will of God. You remember when it said Moses was the meekest man on the face of the whole earth? Here's what we were being told about Moses. He wasn't weak. They weren't saying, the Bible wasn't saying that, that Moses was weak, the weakest man on earth. He was the meekest. That means nobody on earth could beat Moses when it came to bowing to the will of God no matter what it was. You know, not resenting God, not walking away from God, not refusing God. But yes, Lord, when God said, you can't go into the promised land because you lost your temper and you did not represent me in front of the people. You don't see Moses lifting his fist at God saying, how could you do this to me? I've led them for 40 years through this wilderness and you're not going to let me see the promised land? He didn't do that. He bowed. He bowed. That's meekness. That's meekness. John Phillips, the, the, the commentator, one of my favorite commentators, writes, Meekness is like an exotic plant that the Holy Spirit cultivates in the souls of the believer. The meek person is not easily provoked, is patient, long-suffering, all which display great strength, not weakness. Listen, if you can hold your temper and not blow it, you're stronger than the one who loses his temper. If you can be patient when everybody else is being impatient, you're stronger than the impatient. 
The fruits of the Spirit show strength of character, not weakness. If you love when other people hate, you're stronger than the hater. If you have joy, you're stronger than the one who's always down. If you have peace, you're stronger than the one who lives restless. Meekness. Meekness. We are to walk in meekness. Now next Paul tells us why we should be meek and patient towards all men. Because that's who he said we were to exercise meekness towards. All men. He says in verse 3, for we ourselves. Can we say that together? For we ourselves. Now he's taking us back to the way we were. Everybody in here is about to be described if you look at our past life. For we ourselves were also once foolish. Anybody can say amen to that? disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's the way we were. Amen. Amen. So we were not very likable, were we? And so he's saying, since that's the way we were, let's remember the way we were and don't get haughty and don't get high-minded and forget that those that you're having to exercise meekness towards, you used to be like them. So let's deal with these. Paul loves lists, and I don't want to miss any of his words because they're all important because the Holy Ghost moved on him to put them in here. So first, Paul focuses on the way we were in our interior lives. He first describes the way we were on the inside. He says, we used to live just like the people in the world. We were first foolish, which is the same word Paul uses in Romans to describe the lack of wisdom in the heathen. It means senseless. I could easily say stupid, without common sense, doing stupid things. Did you ever look yourself in the mirror and say, hey, stupid, why'd you do that? Come on, have you ever looked at yourself in the mirror that way? He says, what were we like? We were foolish. We were making terrible decisions. We were making foolish decisions. No wisdom, senseless. And then he says we were disobedient which means unwilling to be persuaded. We were obstinate. We were stubborn. Again, can I ask for a show of hands here? Is that anybody like me? Well, I sure was. Woo! I would not have wanted to deal with me because I was disobedient, obstinate, stubborn. Turned out God was bigger than me. Amen? So we were disobedient. And we were also deceived, foolish, disobedient, and deceived. That means deluded, under delusion, walking in lies. And we lived our lives serving various lusts and pleasures. That's the way we lived. The word serving here means a slave. We lived our lives as slaves to various lusts and pleasures. Even Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. We were helpless and we were hopeless, slaves to sin. I remember trying to stop and couldn't stop. I remember wishing I could get a grip on my life and couldn't do it. Because I was a slave to sin. And the more you sin, the more you become a slave to it. See, really, church, we all have an option. There is not a person in the world who's not a slave to one of two things. You're either God's slave or you're a sin slave. You're never in between. There's no fence. We're either a slave to God, a slave to Christ. That's why Paul always called himself Christ's slave, Christ's servant. 
or we're a slave to sin. And you know, if you're a slave to sin, sin will do you bad. Sin will chew you up and spit you out. Sin is never, never, never advantageous. But serving Christ just gets better and better and better. So that if I'm his slave, when he says, hey, Jeff, go here, I go. If he says stop, I stop. If he says go, I go. If he says turn, I turn because I'm his slave. And you know what? In becoming his slave, I find my freedom. You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Amen. Then in the second half of verse 3, Paul deals with how the inside of us cause us to treat others outside of us. Here he goes. He said, we lived in malice and envy. Now, malice is how you treat other people. Malice refers to vicious character, and it literally conveys the ideas of wickedness and depravity. It's the desire to do harm to others. Not pretty. Not pretty. Malice. But this is and always will be the condition of the unsaved heart. You know, what are we seeing in our country right now everywhere? We're seeing malice. Hatred. I mean, hatred. Wickedness. Depravity. I mean, it's right there for all to see. Literally, people wanting to harm others. Just look at the political arena alone. Look at the hatred. Look at the viciousness. Look at the vitriol. Look at the death wishes. Look at all the things that are happening in the political arena alone. Not to mention terrorism and all of the evils of the world. It's malice. Malice. Wickedness and depravity. I never look at things like that and say, how did they do that? I know how they did it. Because the Bible says, the heart without God is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Amen. Now, he says also envy. Envy is when we resent and even hate others when they are honored or succeed or come into some kind of blessing. It's called the green-eyed monster. It was envy that caused Joseph's brothers to betray him. They saw the father favoritism. They saw Jacob uh, practicing favoritism. And they resented it. They resented it. And they resented the object of his favor, Joseph. They hated his coat of many colors, which reminded them of the father's favor over Joseph's life. So when they took him and threw him into the pit, the first thing that they wanted to do was rip that coat off of him, that coat of many colors, the symbol of the favor of the father. It was envy that made them betray him and sell him into slavery. And the Bible tells us straight up that envy motivated the religious leaders to demand Jesus' execution. We're told straight up it was envy. They couldn't stand, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, couldn't stand the way the crowds loved Jesus. They hated him because of the favor he had with the people. And so they betrayed him. Now, jealousy and envy are two different things. And here's the distinction. Jealousy is when you want what someone else has. I want it. You've got it. I want it. But envy is when you resent the fact that they've got it, period. You envy them for it. They've got that position. They've got that paycheck. They've got that house. They've got those looks. They've got that talent. And I envy them. And it makes me hate them. But jealousy says... I hate that they've got it, and I'm going to get what they've got. That's jealousy. 
They not only got a good-looking spouse, but I'm going to get that spouse. You understand? And we were hateful. He says we were hateful. Now, interestingly, the Greek word translated into hateful here is found only here in the entire New Testament. And it presents a picture of something detestable. Unsaved hearts, folks, are full of hatred from early on. Have you ever thought about that? Do you remember the things that kids did to you in elementary school? Do you remember that? Have you ever seen little kids so bully another little kid that that little kid wants to commit suicide or move from the school because so much hatred is coming his way from little bitty kids? Because the Bible says a child is known by his works, whether they are evil or whether they are good. Even a child... Because early on, that fallen, depraved heart we're born with, that heart that has a bent towards sin, learns to hate, learns envy, learns jealousy, will steal, will lie. Raising kids is not teaching them to be bad. We're trying to teach them to be good because they've got such a bent towards being bad. Amen. The heart is desperately wicked. A heart full of hate can do anything. That's why Jesus said, you better deal with an offense when the offense happens and don't let the offense move forward. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's very clear about this. He's very clear about guarding the heart. And he talks about the stages that a heart goes through when a heart begins to hate. And it begins with an offense. And if you were to ask me after 34 years of pastoring God's people, uh, what is the single most successful trap that Christians fall into, no matter how much you teach on it, is falling into the trap of offense. I get offended. I don't deal with it. I develop a grudge. I nurse that grudge until it becomes anger, and anger becomes bitterness, and bitterness becomes hatred. And before you know it, you're out of your walk with God. You're out of the church. There's no more peace. You're not praying anymore because the offense, like a thief, has moved into your heart and you didn't deal with it at the beginning. That's why I say immediately forgive. Immediately forgive so that you can nip it in the bud so that it doesn't develop into something that is bigger than you. What a condition we were in. But next comes the good news. Everybody say, I'm ready for some good news. Here it is in verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Hallelujah. Thank God for that when. Amen? But when God's kindness appeared in the midst of our dark sinfulness, when we were wallowing in the muck and the mire of sin and evil, suddenly there he was. There he was, God our Savior. When the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared. How many of you are grateful for that hour, that moment? When the kindness and the love of God appeared in your darkness. Boy, I remember it like yesterday. And you know what he wants us to understand? None of it was of us, by us, or from us. Because he says in verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. We did nothing. Everybody say nothing. 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 Not 1% of our salvation, not a half a percent, not a scintilla, 
Not a thimbleful of our salvation was of us. But according to his mercy, according to his mercy, he saved us. We did nothing to earn it. It was all of him, and it was none of us. Now, this is one of the hardest truths for us to accept, and not only accept, but walk in. Because something deep within us, and I don't know if you still deal with this, but I do from time to time, something deep within us is convinced that we've got to do something. We've got to do something to help God along. We've got to do something. Some good work, something meritorious, uh, some way that we gain a little bit more of his favor, because after all, he's watching. And if I do the right thing, then I'm going to have him love me more. I'm going to have him accept me more. I'm going to have him receive me more based on what I do. And we can't get in our heads that that is not the way Christianity operates. Now, we are to involve ourselves in good works. But good works or the lack thereof don't increase or decrease the love of God towards us one whit. He loves me as much when I fail him as when I obey him. He loves me just as much. You see, we take it back to being raised by parents. And if I did the right thing, I had their favor. I had their smile. If I did the wrong thing, man, I was in trouble. I was in the woodshed. I was sent to my room. I was, I was, I was paddled or whatever. Hey, my parents whooped me. I'm just telling you they did. Now, I, I can still hear the sound of my dad's belt coming off. Now, so we, we take our parental raising, the way we were raised with our parents, and we, and we project that onto God. But God says, no, you didn't do anything to earn your salvation. You can't do anything to earn my favor. I chose to save you. It was according to his mercy, he saved us. This truth about God's grace flies in the face of all other religions. You take any cult, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, any cult, they always require works in order to gain acceptance from God and the cult leadership. You've got to jump through hoops. You've got to do some things to gain favor. And if you don't do the right works, you're not received. But I don't do any works for God to get received. Now, I'll do a work for God to obey Him. But that has nothing to do with how he receives me or not. He loves me no matter what. And then there's, there's some people, and I've talked to some of these people lately, because I tell you all the time, I try my best to talk to lost people as much as I can, and I want to encourage you to do the same. And there are people you talk to, and I talked to one just recently, that the very idea that they are good enough to get into heaven betrays how deceived they are. Because I've had them tell me. I had one tell me just last week. I, I, I'm really okay with the guy upstairs. Because I really have, he, I'm quoting now, I have not been a bad person. And then this person said to me, the most I've ever done is, is hurt people's expectations of me. But that's the worst I've ever done. Other than that, I've been a pretty good guy, and I think I'm okay when I die. He literally told me this. He, he told me this straight up. I'm okay. Listen, not according to the Bible. See, what they do, people who believe that, who feel that way, they compare themselves, and my dad was that way for the longest time. They compare themselves with drug addicts, prisoners, thieves, murderers, swindlers, prostitutes, and others that society frowns on, and they say, see, in comparison to them, I'm not like them. 
I'm a good person by comparison, so I'm getting through the pearly gates while they're not. And there are many people around you who believe that about themselves. And this is the very attitude that Jesus brought out in a simple story that I want to read to you out of Luke's gospel. Because I want to just shoot that notion out of the room. Luke 18, verse 9. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Verse 10. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. Not me. I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. Verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a what, everybody? Sinner. What did Jesus say in verse 14? I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, return home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So according to Jesus, one of the great dangers to becoming saved is self-righteousness. To believe you have no sin to forgive. That by your own, because you're so wonderful. That though some people, like those tax collectors and drug addicts and so on, are going to go to hell, not you, because you are you after all. Well, John, in his first letter, letter bluntly says this in, in 1 John 1, verse 10. Or, or what, verse 8 rather, he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Yeah. And then verse 10, if we claim that we have not sinned, we make him, that is God and Christ, out to be a liar and his word is not in us. If you have no, if you say, I don't have any sin, you've just called Christ a liar. Why did he even need to come if we have no sin? No, all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. So, not by our own works, but by his mercy, he saved us. Now, Paul next describes just how God saved us. And I love this. He says in verse 5, halfway through, through the washing of regeneration. Through the washing of regeneration. This is how he saved us. The word washing is from the Greek word lutron, meaning to have a bath. Through the bath of regeneration. In God's sight, folks, our sin is so vile, we require a spiritual bath. Our bodies were intended to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, and our spirits were intended to be His shrine. But when sin entered at the fall, the Holy Spirit departed. What a sad day that was. Can you imagine being Adam? And the Bible tells us that Adam walked with God in the cool of the garden like two friends. Walked with God. He talked to God and God talked back. But when Adam sinned, suddenly God departed. For me, hell 
the worst part of it is that God's not there. The Holy Spirit's not there. You're in a place forever that will never be visited by God. I think of every morning when I get up and I, and I get into the Word of God. Uh, it has been my habit for years. I get into that Word and I spend time with Him. And how that presence, He walks with me as the song says. He talks with me. And He tells me I am His own. There is that fellowship we have with Him. And, and, and when the very thought of never, ever, ever experiencing that again is too much for me. But that's hell. That's hell. The total absence of God. The total absence of light. The total absence of love. That's hell. When sin entered the fall, the Holy Spirit departed, leaving Adam and Eve and us by default spiritually dead. So before the Holy Spirit can re-enter his temple, there has to be a total cleansing. And how does that happen? By the blood of God's Lamb, Jesus. How many of you can say, I'm thankful for the blood of the Lamb? Amen? The blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb. Because that's the way I get into the presence. That's the way I got into the presence, and I get into it every day. So once the washing, the Lutron, once that has taken place, the regeneration can take place. He says, by the washing of regeneration. Now the word regeneration literally means born again. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born twice to enter the kingdom of God. That's regeneration, born again, born twice. Born once, you're lost. Born twice, you're found. Born once, you're blind. Born twice, you see. Born once, you're hell-bound. Born twice, you're heaven-bound. Amen. Born once, you're lost. Born twice, you're found. So the word regeneration is born again. The Holy Spirit at regeneration comes back into the cleansed believer's body and quickens his dead spirit back to life again. What a powerful truth. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, what did he do? Made us alive together with Christ. We were dead, he made us alive. So you could be walking around on this planet, and maybe somebody listening later by radio, some of our radio friends are listening right now, and maybe you're going to work, coming home, raising a family, earning a good paycheck, you got a good education, you're socially mobile and, and you're moving upward and a lot of your dreams are coming true. But let me tell you something. If you don't know Jesus, you're a dead man, a dead woman walking. Now, I don't say that condescendingly. I say it in love. We were dead in trespasses. And unless you go through that lutron, that washing through the blood of Jesus, and then the Holy Ghost quickens your spirit back to life, your inner man, your interior life is dead. You must be born twice. There is no option. We could put it this way. When man was created, he was generated. That just means to, be, to cause to be. You know, we talk about you've got a generator at your house. So if the power goes out, you've got a generator. You can crank it, and that generator will power your house. So when we were created by God, we were generated we were, we were, he breathed into us the breath of life, and man became a living soul. We were generated. 
caused to be. But when we fell, when Adam fell, he was degenerated. He lost the power, lost the life. He departed from normalcy. But then when a man is born again, he is regenerated, restored to normalcy, recreated, requickened to life. So the story of man is really generation to degeneration to regeneration. Amen. And then he says, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Thank God for the Holy Spirit. The renewing of the Holy Spirit simply is talking about the continuing operation of the Holy Spirit in the life of the regenerated believer. He's telling us renewing of the Holy Ghost. Uh, it is in the, pre- it, I don't want to get technical here, but it's in what we call the present active indicative in the Greek language. And what that means is something that is ongoing, something that is happening every day. Didn't Paul say in another place, we are renewed how often? Day by day. The renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's the continuing operation of the Holy Spirit in the life of the regenerated believer. For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. God is working in you every day. For it is God at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's talking about the renewing of the Holy Spirit. He's renewing us day by day. Though the outer man is perishing, didn't Paul write about this? The inward man is being renewed. Say it with me, day by day. God is now back in your life when you're regenerated. You've been restored to the normalcy God always intended for us. That being to walk with Him. Walking with God is normal. Living without God is abnormal. The believer has been radically changed from the inside out. Paul wrote, old things have passed away. All things are made new. And then Paul says in verse 6, Whom He poured out on us, speaking of the Holy Ghost, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Can I just point out real quick that he used the personal pronoun whom when referring to the Holy Spirit so that it's very clear the Holy Spirit is not an it or a force or some kind of spiritual fog, but is a person. God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Ghost. The person of the Holy Spirit lives in us. And what does he tell us about him? He's been given to us abundantly. Believers have a vast supply of living water God pours out in a never-failing stream. But you got to go get it. You got to go get it. Now, every day I pour water in my dog's bowls. But you know what? Say it with me. They got to go get it. They can look and say, well, yeah, he poured water in my bowl. He sure did. There it sits, right across the room. There is water in my bowl. He's a good master. He put water in my bowl. Thank you, Jeff, for putting water in my bowl. There it is right there. Do you see it over there? The two dogs talking about it? There it is. But there comes a moment where they say, you know what? I've got to go access what he gave me. And I've got to go to the bowl and drink what he has made available for me. That's why I tell you, you've got to get up every day and get with God. Because when I get with God every day, I'm going to the bowl. I'm going to the stream. And I'm drinking what he gave me. But I've got to take 
advantage of it. Jesus said, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. Now let me ask you a question. Going back to the Old Testament, you remember when the people were crying and griping and complaining about not having water? Remember that? And what did God tell Moses to do? He told Moses to go to the rock and speak to it. He had to go to the rock and use the authority God gave him and obey God and speak to it. And another time, hit it with the rod and the water came out. We've got to do the same thing. We've got to get up and get with God and strike the word with the rod of faith and say, speak to me. I want the water. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. They had to get up and gather the manna. They had to go to the rock to get the water. And the rock that followed them was Christ. It's all a living illustration of New Testament truth. We must go to the Word of God. We must go to the place of prayer and strike it with the rod of faith. And when you do, the water gushes out. I never close that Bible without having drunk of the spiritual living waters of the Spirit. And it carries me through the rest of the day. Amen? And I can't go on last year's fumes. A lot of Christians are fume Christians. When was the last time you were with God? Oh, with that revival. When? Oh, back in 1989. That was a great revival. Hallelujah. Well, really? Okay. When was the last time you struck the rock? Well, that's been a while. Well, stop it. Get up every day and strike the rock. And partake of the water. Now, finally, in the last verse I'm going to deal with tonight, Paul looks to the future, but he first deals with justification. Everybody perk up, because this is so important, we understand justification. He says in verse 7, that having been justified by his grace, the word justified here is a legal term that means to be declared righteous before the law. The law has no claim against a justified person. Now let me tell you what I mean by that. Justification, folks, is greater than forgiveness. In this respect, a person who has been proven guilty may be forgiven by the offended party while still facing the consequences of their actions. I told you I watch the ID channel all the time. I watch real-life crime stories all the time because I see the hand of God at work all the time in these stories. And I've seen stories where a family member was murdered. And I've seen like the parents or the siblings forgive the killer. But the killer still went to prison. He's forgiven, but he still went to prison. But listen, a justified person has been acquitted. There is no more record of being guilty. The guilty slate has been wiped clean. So when he says we've been justified, that's better than forgiven. Because I can be forgiven but still receive consequences for sin. But justified is, it's as if I never did it. That's why I love justification is just as if I never did it. The salvation Jesus brought to us not only offers forgiveness, but it justifies the believer, acquitting them of all charges. The record of our sins is eternally expunged from God's memory. Say, God, do you remember what I did? No. What'd you do? Well, you know, right back there in, you know, 
2002, I, this and that and the other. God says, I don't remember. Well, how do you not remember? You're God. Because I buried what you did in the sea of forgiveness, and you're justified. Therefore, it's just as if you never did it. Hello, everybody. It's just as if you never did it. So when you go before God, thank God he's got God-induced amnesia. He does not. It's been wiped away by the power of the blood that not only forgives but justifies us. And then he says, he ends with the future. So that we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hope points forward. Hope never looks back. Hope points forward. Because all charges against us have been thrown out of heaven's court. We will inherit as heirs the eternal life. Only Jesus can offer. And that's a future focus. That's all about our future. No wonder the Holy Spirit tells us in Hebrews 7.25 that we have been saved to the uttermost. Now that's the salvation I like, to the uttermost. As somebody put, from the guttermost to the uttermost. We've been saved from the guttermost to the uttermost. So, amen? amen? How many of you are blessed by the word tonight? How many of you are glad you're justified? Let's stand together, can we? And next week we're going to look at Paul's final thoughts, and they're all really, really good because every verse is God-inspired. Let's lift our hands to the Lord and just thank Him. Father, we thank You for Your Word tonight. We thank You, Lord, for the power of Your Word, the blessing of Your Word, the promise of Your Word. Thank You that though we were the way we were, we are now redeemed. Thank you, Lord, for forgiveness, and thank you for justification. Thank you, Lord, for redeeming us by mercy. And we just say thank you, Jesus, for the mercy that saved me. The mercy that saved me. Thank you for the mercy of God. In Jesus' name, let's worship him just a moment. Thank you,